Welcome to Homefront on Missouri Grassroots Radio. I'm Cynthia Davis, your host. As a writer, speaker, and former legislator, we discuss limiting government, fiscal responsibility, and fair taxation. I'm a mother of seven and a wife of one for over three decades, so I bring you my personal experience. And now it's time for Homefront with Cynthia Davis. Great evening to all of you. Thank you for joining us tonight. Boy, do we have a fabulous guest. This is going to really be impressing the constitutional scholars because tonight with us we have Janice Shaw Krause. She's the senior fellow at the Beverly LaHaye Institute, which is the think tank for Concerned Women for America. So we have with us tonight the recognized authority on national and international all kinds of women's concerns, sex trafficking, the United Nations, domestic issues. And tonight, the burning question is what happened last week? We woke up Wednesday morning not having any idea that the earth was going to tilt. And here we are now on the other side of the Supreme Court decision. I know a lot of you... You know, while you do listen to Supreme Court decisions, it really becomes a little bit messy for those who are working all day and don't have time to devote to being just studying every jot and tittle of it. So tonight we have somebody who has studied the jots and the tittles. And so thank you for being with us, Dr. Krauss. Thank you, Cynthia. It's great to be with you. Please call me Janice. Uh, okay. You know, you're right. Everybody outside the Beltway and many people inside the Beltway have no way of understanding what's going on at the Supreme Court because we don't have time to read those hundreds and hundreds of pages of opinions. And so it's really important to look at what's actually in there rather than what the mainstream media say because there are not that many programs like yours where people actually get down to talk about the specifics. Instead, we rely on these big anchor persons who tell us what's going on, and, of course, they often, too often, have their own opinions and their own political agendas to grind. And what we've heard is that this has made a huge difference in terms of um, the whole issue of same-sex marriage versus traditional marriage. And the truth of the matter is, when you get right down to the fine print, they punted, the Supreme Court punted on the Proposition 8 vote, and on the DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, they had a very limited uh, decision. So it was not the sweeping decision that this media portrayed it to be. Instead, it was a very, very specific decision. But in terms of the PR and what the public thinks now, it has been portrayed to be this huge, big victory for well, the same I, marriage folks. Yeah, I, I believe there has been considerably more celebration on the side of those who want to engage in a deviant lifestyle and people who want the government and the community, society to embrace them and and love them. And you know what? We do love them. We love everyone. We're trying to be kind, gracious, sweet, hospitable, and and all the things that make us as Americans a good society. It's all important to be inclusive of everybody. The difference is this is a situation where we have a group of people who want to have special extra niceties that other people don't have. I am, am an employer. I own my own business. I own a Christian bookstore, Back to Basics Christian Bookstore in O'Fallon. And I want to be able to hire anybody I want <laughs> and and somebody who's obviously free markets demand that we will hire people who do the job the best. It's just like that. And and when people come in my store, it doesn't matter to me. The old expression is, 
everybody's money is just as green. My goal in operating my business is first to make enough profit to pay my bills. And so there's no reason not to share everything with everybody and do what we can to make our community great. The, the problem I see is we're societally going down another direction of asking are some people supposed to be treated different than others. And so I really appreciated um Hearing the oral arguments, not everybody has time to listen them, to them, but I do have a newsletter, and anybody can sign up for it on votecynthia.com. And what I talked about today was trying to explain for those, I put the link in there for people who want to listen to the oral arguments and make their own decision up. It, it does take a while. In fact, years ago I heard that the Supreme Court only gave people 15 minutes, but it seemed like both the oral arguments for these were quite a bit beyond. Can you explain to us how that works? Well, they do go quite a bit beyond that. And uh, I think this particular court did something that I've not seen in my lifetime, Cynthia. Uh, it seemed to me that they steered very far away from the Constitution and instead engaged in personal attacks. Justice Kennedy is supposed to be the swing vote. He's the man in the middle between four conservatives and four liberals, and nobody knows exactly who he's going to side with, but they can pretty much count on the conservatives going in a conservative direction and the liberals going in a liberal direction, and then Justice Kennedy having the deciding vote. He has gone sometimes with the conservatives and sometimes with the liberals. In this case, he argued in a way that is just absolutely mind-boggling because what he did was say that... um, the only reason Congress passed the Defense of Marriage Act was because they wanted to disparage, injure, degrade, demean, humiliate. I don't remember all the other words, but a whole long string of words that put down the American public who believe in traditional marriage. And he said we were denying giving dignity to people in same-sex marriage. Well... You know, it's like you said, this is not just asking for acceptance. This is asking for approval of a lifestyle. This is saying not just that you have every other human right that everyone else does. They're asking for, and this decision is giving special treatment and approval to a lifestyle if you judge simply by Justice Kennedy's argument. Um, And I really liked how... Mr. Scalia said it. He said uh, it's one thing to uh, for society to vote for change and for Congress to move change. It's another for the court to say that they're going to institute change because of anybody who opposes it is an enemy of the human race. I mean, that's very, very low blow, don't you think? Effectively, they have resorted to name-calling and imputing motives. And if we're going to have an intelligent debate, we want to have a real debate based on facts, realities, and concrete evidence, not trying to impugn another person. If we don't like each other because one person has... um, I don't know, just you, when you call names, you cannot find your common ground any longer. And for when I read the opinion and read that he was calling Congress effectively these names by saying, in, right. in effect, anybody who voted for this is trying to humiliate people, is trying to degrade people, is trying to demean people. What? How Even an enemy you? of the human race. It's yes. just... Uh, I mean, that's a very personal attack. Now, when I, I, I spent eight years in the Missouri State Legislature, and before that I spent eight and a half years in the city council, and there were many reasons why people would vote for or against any given piece of legislation. And it is not appropriate to try and state 
I can get into the mind of why that person would have done such a thing. We don't know. We, yeah. What we do know is whatever happened, happened decades ago. And for the, I mean, you know what, do you think the goal was to try and punish the congressional members who would have voted for something as awful as DOMA? Is that what he was trying to say? Well, his rhetoric certainly did uh, attack the goodwill of the majority of Americans, including uh, Congress and including all the people who voted for uh, the bill back in 1996, including President Clinton, including all the people who were the members of Congress at that time, totaling up, you know, a long list of Americans. What if they... What if a member of Congress were merely nothing more than a fiscal conservative? Because the implications that may come from this, it seemed to me like the Defense of Marriage Act was an attempt to clarify that those who get federal benefits, if you want Social Security benefits and, and all the deaths, all the, um, other types of benefits that come from the federal government, you can effectively get a money grab if you if you do it right. And it was trying to keep a lid on how we dole out the money. So my, do you think that what they did in the end was motivated by what Kennedy said? I mean, how do you how do you gauge that, that what a, what a legislator was thinking back then? Well, I think they took into account uh, the cost to the average American of family breakdown, the social cost to, uh, and I'm talking about financial cost here, and that doesn't even go into all the cost of all the children who are uh, into all sorts of uh, undesirable behavior and very damaging behavior that requires help from the public, uh, the social cost when there's no father in the family. We've seen that documented over and over again. And I think all the House members, members of the Senate, President Clinton, took all of that into account before they ever argued that it was not a good thing to redefine what marriage means. Besides that, Marriage has been a central foundation stone of societies across cultures and across time, 2,000 years. Who are these people who suddenly think they are smarter than anybody in history that they can just up and use our culture and our children as guinea pigs, a social experiment? Um, you're dealing with something that is fundamental to communities, it's fundamental to the well-being of uh, men and women and children. It's fundamental to the well-being of our nation. It's, um, as I said earlier, it's a foundation stone. What I remember when went back when DOMA passed, uh, I remember a lot of conservative groups were confused, and even there was some conflict. Even Phyllis Schlafly with Eagle Forum was questioning whether DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, was constitutional because of the full faith and credit clause of the Constitution. How were you feeling back then when you were looking at the passage of DOMA, and how does that relate to where we're at with, I I got married in Massachusetts 32 years ago, I don't want to have to get married in Missouri, so I I appreciate the full faith and credit clause because that means that contracts in other states will count here in our state as well. You you just accept that that's how it works. What did you what were you thinking back then and were you a supporter of DOMA? I was simply because uh I have been very very disturbed about what's happening with the family, and particularly the black family in America. And uh, it seemed to me that we needed some federal statement of what marriage means. I understood Phyllis's objections and other conservatives 
who were afraid that once you get the federal government involved, that's, you know, going over a line in crossing over from limited government to expansion of government authority and that that was not good and that it ought to be a state matter. And I can understand that argument. And there are those who today are saying, well, you know, uh, it would not be all that bad for uh, DOMA to be struck down because, uh, you know, uh, federalism is not good and expanding government into the whole marriage business is not good. Um, I disagree with that because I think the government, uh, the federal government, has a very strong uh, interest in the success of marriage. It has a very strong interest in the success of stable families and in uh, communities built up of families, not individual people, not uh, very fluid household arrangements that come and go. Uh, Cohabiting relationships typically last about five years. Uh, That's not a stable foundation to build a community with. People who are living together without marriage are not people who are going to uh, pay taxes in the same way and have the vested interest in their communities. They're not going to be volunteering. They're not going to be interested in the schools. They're not going to be interested in the church. They're not going to be interested in running for office and doing the kinds of things that help build strong communities. So I think uh, there's a very strong federal interest in marriage. Well, I come from a state, Missouri, where we did pass a marriage amendment that says marriage is only legally recognized if it's between a man and a woman. Now, how long do you think it might be before somebody says, I got married in, let's say, Iowa, where it's just over the border from Missouri? How long is it going to take? I believe I was at a conference that you were doing a presentation at years ago, and you used the exact phrase, it's like we're just holding our finger in the dike. There could be a day when this whole thing gives way. Are we there yet? I think we're awfully close. I really do. Uh, In spite of the fact that um, the actions of the Supreme Court were not expansive, they were a breach. And that breach, unless it's stopped right now, will continue to get bigger and bigger, and it's gonna, the whole thing is going to come crashing down. And, of course, the momentum in terms of public relations, in terms of uh, how people are perceiving the whole issue, the polls now, most people seem to think that it's inevitable. I think we have to stand very strong and say, no, it's not inevitable. You look at the states, um, some 37 states have voted no to uh, same-sex marriage. They have said no marriage should not be redefined, and um, Missouri won of them. Thank you very much, Missouri. (laughs) I think uh, all of your listeners ought to be very, very concerned. They ought to get busy. talking up the strengths of marriage, uh, writing letters to the editor, writing opinion pieces for the local newspapers, calling their congressman, and above all else, above everything else, Cynthia, in 2014, uh, get a Senate that is composed of a majority of conservatives. That is the only way we're going to stop this. Um, Well, you know, years ago, though, if you were a candidate for office and you stood up and said, I'm in favor of homosexuality, you would probably lose your election. Now we're at a place where the reverse is true. If you stand up and say that I'm in favor of marriage between one man and one woman, then you get name-called. I mean, this name-calling thing, the reason particularly conservatives and Christians and people who hold the traditional values, they are now putting us in the closet. They are putting us at a point where we don't dare say anything because, after all, I don't want to get bludgeoned and I don't want anybody calling me a hater. For people who fear God and respect his word, to be called hateful 
is is the worst insult they could call us because we know that we're supposed to love other people and we want to. And so I believe what we're missing out on here is the tactic part of it, that that is part of the technique, that once they call us mean names like what Kennedy did, what he's doing is how do you defend from a void? How can you say no? All you can do is say, no, I'm not. I mean, then we are losing these arguments and we're losing the court cases because we're losing the public debate. If we had the hearts of the people with us, then we could confidently speak the truth, knowing that others would follow and and we would all be together. We need to band together, and we need to fight the common enemy. But we're at a point now where I don't know how that's going to happen when people are being intimidated into silence. So what? Um, let me ask you, you used to be uh, the speechwriter for George H.W. Bush, correct? Right. And so let me ask you, what kind of speeches and where was the heart and pulse of America? We're back in, that was back in, um, tell me, 90. what? how did, <laughs> give me the dates and tell me how you <laughs> focused on helping him win the debate. Well, back in then, uh, family values was a swear word, quite frankly. The very first speech that I wrote for uh, President Bush, the first President Bush, was a speech to the uh, a group called the Preservation of the Black Family in America. They were meeting in the old executive office building, a uh, huge auditorium on the top floor of that building, and groups came in and met there. Uh, this was a group of evangelical uh, charismatic pastors, and it was on a Thursday. And I thought, wow, this is... Uh, I believe it was late July, early August, before the conventions. And um, I thought, wow, this is so important because all these pastors will go back to their churches. They all had churches, at least 3,000 members, and they were to go back to their churches, of course, on Sunday. And I thought, oh, they will go back absolutely understanding that this president is for the preservation of the family. He is all for strong families. And so that's the kind of speech I wrote. Well, when it came back from clearance, and that means that any speech that a speechwriter writes has to go to all the cabinet officers and about 25 people, heads of the different agencies and so forth, and if they want to, they can comment, and some do, and there's a deadline, and by that deadline, they have to respond and the chief speechwriter then uh, brings those comments back to the speechwriter, and the speechwriter can include them or not. Well, this was my first speech, so the head of the speechwriting department said he would handle the edits. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> and so I very kindly said, oh, no, I don't want you doing my job. I'm happy to do that. And he insisted, no, no, no. And... He completely rewrote the speech, and it became a political speech about something that had happened up on the hill the day before. Took out all the pro-family stuff. So this was 1992, and even wow. back then, um, you know, this was just before the Murphy Brown speech. Many of your listeners will remember that, uh, and uh, so the whole idea of talking about family values was something that the first Bush administration didn't want to get into. And uh, that has been typical, I think, of the Republican Party, not wanting to deal with the social issues. Had we taken a strong stance at that point in time, I think, um, we would be in a much better position today, and perhaps history would be even different. Uh, but we didn't, and the situation You're right. You know, the... The Republican Party in Missouri had a moment a few months ago when the first Republican state legislator in the entire nation stood up and announced he was a homosexual. And there were Republicans and Democrats standing with this individual in the press conference, and they hailed it as this is the beginning of a new wave of Republicans now embracing homosexuality. Well, goodness, how are we ever going to 
stand on a platform if we don't even agree with the platform and we've got elected officials. To my knowledge, there was no party discipline and no opportunity for people to really choose do we really, yeah i was in i was living in massachusetts when barney frank came uh, uh announced that well there was a scandal this goes back probably 3 decades ago but he was having sex with the page boys in the capitol and, your- <laughs> and he yeah he it it did not take him down i remember watching the news and saying he, the man will never get elected again and you know what? It didn't have one bit of impact on his ability to get elected. He got elected till he decided he wanted to retire. And that, well, there's yes, a that, standard. You know, there was a different standard for Bill Clinton with the accusations against him. Uh, it's amazing to me how the Republicans are held to a different standard than the Democrats. But be that as it may, as wrong as that is, we still, I think have to live with the fact that there are several things, not just the cowardice and the temerity and the lack of courage from uh, Republicans, but I think so many Christians still think there's something dirty about politics. And there's also the very realistic aspect that for most Christians, their family, their church, Their community is very important to them. They have so many things they're doing that are really, really good things. And being concerned about the nitty-gritty of politics is way down on their list of concerns. And quite frankly, uh, most people don't have time to deal with it because they're very busy doing very good things. Um, So... That is an aspect. The other aspect, I think there are a lot of Christian people who don't like controversy, and so they've deliberately tuned out all of the controversy of the culture, and they don't want to have to deal with it. And that leaves then the left and all the radical activists a free playing field to go out there and, you know, call us bigots and and do all the dirty politics that have brought us to the point we're at today. Um, And quite frankly, I think the church has not had the prophetic voice that it needs from the pulpit. Um, We need stronger leaders in our Christian communities uh, who are people of faith, particularly in the black community. I look at uh, many of the uh, supposedly Christian black leaders who have been far more uh, political than they have been Christian. And in many of our um, mainstream denominations, that's true as well. Many of, I'm United Methodist, for instance, and many of our bishops are much more interested in the politics around the world and the leftist radical politics than they are in the theological issues and in um, dealing with biblical principles and looking at the social issues that are so important to the family. You well, my uh, yeah, I mean, we're looking at, uh, I wonder how many pulpits had pastors who actually discussed this on Sunday. What, the problem is many churches have, actually forfeited their moral high ground by accepting other practices and and we have now so many people who about people being silenced i think that has been a deliberate strategy to silence christian people you know separation of church and state well that's such a ridiculous argument so (laughs) you know we're not about having the state promote religion. We're talking about the state enabling all faiths to express their views publicly. You're right. Talk to me about economics for a minute. The For many years, and, and I have been serving as the executive director for the Center for Marriage Policy, and we were looking at the federal tax laws 
and realize that there is still a marriage penalty in place, meaning that it's disadvantageous for couples to, in in some respects, in our tax code, to to be married. And we have seen a proliferation of cohabitation because so many people have found that they'll have more access to welfare benefits if they're not married. So do you think it's possible that those in the homosexual community might actually not want marriage and now that they are fighting so hard to get included in the marriage category that they might actually turn it down once it's been made available because it is more fiscally advantageous to be single? I think that's a very real possibility. It's also an established fact in the sociological research that homosexual relationships typically are very short-lived. They are not stable, long-term relationships. They are inherently promiscuous. Uh, That is not as true with lesbian couples as it is homosexual couples, but um, all of these glowing couples that you see on television and in the news uh, about uh, homosexual marriage are not the mainstream. It is the rare couple. Uh, What you mean is that more women stay together than men, the men tend to break up after a short time. And, like, I heard a statistic, 87% of the time they break up. I mean, that's that's, not even close. What did you know? Oh, it's very, very common uh, in the research literature to show that homosexual couples just do not stay together very long. It's by nature they are very promiscuous. Uh, Lesbian, female couples do tend to stay together longer, but uh, even there, not as much so as heterosexual couples. Well, there was an article that came out this weekend that talked about the link between homosexual behavior and fornication. And this author says, a former student recently asked me why so much of the Christian community has gone silent in the face of growing acceptance of homosexual behavior in our culture. The reasons are no doubt complicated and multifaceted, but let me venture to take a stab at one of the factors I believe is at the heart of it. For at least a generation or two, Christians have been winking at premarital sex and tacitly accepting it as normal, if not inevitable, even for their fellow believers. And there's a statistic here that 80% of contemporary unmarried Christians aged 18 to 29 admit to having premarital sex. So he's explaining that this cohabitation mentality is related to acceptance of homosexuality because how do you say that that's wrong when you're not even admitting to your own problems and the the numbers of people cohabiting seems to be parallel with the acceptance of homosexuality have you observed that well i read that same article and i find it very compelling i thought he made a very very strong case um i was very struck too by that 80 percent uh, statistic and my own research shows 62% of the couple, evangelical couples that get married have had sex before they get married. It's uh, pretty alarming to look at that trend and um, no wonder we can't speak with authority. No wonder we cannot say with assurance uh, sex is best God meant sex to be between a married man and a woman. You know, it's very hard to say that when uh, you're not living it yourself, when you're not uh, requiring that of your children, when that's not something that is expected in your church, when you know that it's not being lived amongst the people that uh, Mm. are believers. So I think he's very definitely onto something there. And I, you know, go back to the fact that the church has not had a very strong voice on many of these issues in the past. I think we have to wake up. We have to be more outspoken. And when it comes right back to this Supreme Court decision, 
I think um, we are still in the majority, and I think that's an important thing for you and I to keep saying. You know, the majority of Americans do think that marriage should be just a man and a woman, a husband and a wife committed to each other for life. That is still the majority preference. That's still the majority practice. And so we have to keep hammering that point home. Um, homosexuals still less than 10%, less than 5% of the population. So one of the reasons they're pushing so hard to make homosexuality not just acceptable but approved, not just uh, accepted but part of the mainstream, not just part of the mainstream but taught to our children and a major part of our culture. I don't know if if you feel the same way I do, but I can't even pick up a magazine now without having um, a homosexual couple highlighted. No matter what kind of magazine it is, home decoration, well, there's a homosexual couple showing their home and how beautifully they have it decorated. Cooking, you've got a couple who are homosexual, and this is how they prepare their dinner. This <laughs> goes well, on and on and on. It's in our face constantly and you can't watch a movie you can't read a book you can't do anything that's in the public eye without being confronted right in your face with homosexual behavior so that we are desensitized our children are desensitized it's a definite campaign and i think we have to continue speaking out and christian people have to christian people who have christian principles who live what they preach um, who are authentic in their beliefs in that what they say is how they live, we've got to speak up and proclaim the good news of the gospel that these parameters that God put in our lives are there for a purpose. That's how he created us. He knew what was best for us in the long term. And they're not to make us miserable. They're not to cause us to be bigots and hate other people or be judgmental and all those other things that we don't want to be, but instead is to give us the confidence that our choices within those parameters will lead to our long-term well-being and the long-term well-being of our children. You're right, and we can do better than this. Bottom line, we are brave and noble we have integrity we don't resort to name calling we can handle intellectual facts i i I will tell you my husband's favorite candy bar is snickers and it was i think it was two years ago when we were watching the super bowl and they had an ad on and these two mechanics in a garage uh were both wanting a snickers bar and they both took a bite out of one end and and it almost looked like a, you know, their lips were way too close. And my husband looked at that, and he said, I will never eat a Snickers bar again. <laughs> oh, interesting. I've not seen that. Oh, my. That's the kind of thing that is so insidious, so mm-hmm. terribly insidious. And it infuriates me because that you can look at it and say, well, you know, it was just being funny. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was planted to give that idea. Were they doing, were they kissing? Did they almost mm-hmm. kiss there? You know, it plants a question in your mind, and next time you see it, you're not quite so shocked. Right. And the exactly. Next time you're in, and uh, it's a desensitization kind of thing that is. Uh, we are just being <laughs> inundated. I, I read an article that somebody posted on our side, and he was trying to make a point about homosexuality. And for the clip art, he picked a picture of two men. And I called him on the phone. I said, take that thing down. You're offending people with it. That is not helping you make your point. <laughs> that's that's the wrong image. You're right. We have a conscience. And when we don't have to look, I told him, for me, looking at that is like forcing me to look at pornography. I don't want to look at it. I want to read your article, but I don't want to look at your porn. So he took it down. (laughs) Anyway, let's... mm -hmm. Go ahead. Well, I was going to turn the corner here. So if you have one last comment, I want to get into California, the, the other decision that was made, and... 
I, I think that it's important for us to understand. If anybody is looking up, looking it up, you can find it on my newsletter I went out today, but the, you won't find it unless you know to look for Hollingsworth versus Perry. And in the Hollingsworth versus Perry decision, it seemed like what the Supreme Court did was tell the citizens that there's nothing more you can do if your government leaders won't stand with you. Now, as a former state legislator, I'm very familiar with the roles of the attorney general. And in our state, we have an attorney general who doesn't, it is kind of like California. He just doesn't care about things that aren't things that are going to get him reelected. And you and I are very principled people, and, and most people would be shocked to think that a government official would be reneging on his duty and, and derelict in his duty. And, and we assume, well, then if you're not doing your job, you should not have run for office, and you certainly shouldn't run for re-election. And when you do run for re-election, you should be voted out of office. Well, unfortunately, it doesn't happen that way. Most of the political offices are bought by whoever has the most money to fund the campaign. So here we are, back again, asking this California decision. These very noble people in California said, our elected officials are failing to pass a law defining marriages between a man and a woman. Now, I was in the state legislature in Missouri when we, the legislators, put that question on the ballot. I was on the committee that heard it, and Maggie Gallagher came and testified, and it was very historic for Missouri because we said, by gum, we're going to do it. We put it on the ballot. It passed with 71% of the vote. Everybody felt very, we all patted ourselves on the back and said, there, we did it. Now, California, unfortunately, doesn't have legislators who would be gratuitous enough to put it on their ballot. So they use the citizens initiative process, which is the other way to do it if your legislators are unresponsive. Right. They finally got the thing passed, took it to court, um, well, the, the homosexuals took them to court, and the, the judge ruled that their constitutional amendment is unconstitutional. So this one did make it up to the Supreme Court. Do you think that the Supreme Court justices were sorry they took the case? I mean, they have the right to decline any case they want. Why did they even take it? if they were going to conclude that maybe California should just listen to whatever their court says? Well, that just didn't make any sense. They clearly punted, you know, they by saying that the group did not have the standing to defend the amendment. Um, that just, you know, that did not make sense. It was clearly a loophole that they took, um, which was offensive enough, but, even more offensive to me, Cynthia, was the way the California officials handled that, to have judges immediately starting to marry couples in California and flaunt that action was, to me, just totally irresponsible. Um, you know, they got away with rejecting the will of the majority in their state, and then they turn around and flaunt that by immediately after the Supreme Court decision, marrying couples and totally ignoring the fact that the constitutional amendment was passed by over 7 million voters, 51% or was it 52% of California it, voters? It, whatever it was, it was good enough to pass. It legitimately passed. It was clean and square and fair and honor. Uh, you know, it, it all was an honest ballot initiative. It, I don't live in Cali I don't live in California, but if I did, I would feel very depressed tonight because since some of our listeners do live in California, sorry for you, guys, love you, sorry. <laughs> but the thing that's depressing 
is we have believed all this time that if the if the proper channels in place fail, we have a safety valve. All you have to do is get the initiative put petition on the ballot, which is very difficult anyway. Once you do that, you educate the voters, which is also very difficult. They made a victory out of it. It did happen. The voters have spoken. And then after right. all that work... To have their judges say, no, I don't think so? What are we supposed to learn from this? I think we learned that votes matter. I hope the country has learned that. I could not believe Barack Obama was reelected uh, in 2012. And to think of all the things that have happened since that reelection, it's just astounding to see our nation just deteriorating right from under our feet. It's appalling to see what has happened. And I think the populace, I'm praying that uh, the American citizenry will wake up and these extreme actions are going to wake us up to the point that uh, people will get involved before 2014 and say, this cannot stand. You know, we are not going to have our country fundamentally transformed the way the president promised it would be. And that, of course, has given uh, courage. It's given momentum. It's put wind in the sails of all the radical activists, uh, including the Ninth Circuit Court out in California and all those judges and California officials who think they've gotten away with rejecting the will of the majority. I'm praying that voters will say, no. You did not, and I see things now. I know just within my own family, I have two sisters who have not been politically active because they don't like controversy, and they are uncomfortable in um, situations where people are arguing. They've suddenly gotten very politically involved and very openly involved because they've seen uh, some of the things that uh, I've been ranting about for a number of years, and mm-hmm. suddenly they realize, oh, it's not just my big sister ranting and raving. These are really happening, and it's changing our country for the bad. Well, I have a sister who lives in Texas, and she gave me a great insight into how most people felt in November because – she even said, I don't think I'm going to vote this November. And I'm like, why not? She said, well, I don't like any of the candidates. We've put up lousy candidates, and then we're surprised that they nobody wants them. And the the vote for Obama was much less than the number of voters he had four years earlier. It's just that the other people running against him weren't, weren't that impressive either. I mean, it's sad when when you watch him get another term because clearly he does not have the best interest of this country at heart. It seems like every time he was at the fork in the road where he could have made a decision one way or another, he always made the worst possible decision for the direction of our country. So that has always been a puzzle. I'm not sure if the people will wake up. I'm not sure if grassroots America has enough money to overcome the puppeteers who've already bought and paid for these elections. I'm not sure if we are going to see worse laws yet ahead on the horizon. I it just when you say it couldn't get worse, it does. I believe that you know that part of why the homosexuals want to have laws that support their lifestyle is because deep down inside there's this awful feeling that I don't have a clean conscience. I feel guilty. I, I believe all these words that Kennedy used about demeaning and humiliation and degrading, I think they're feeling that way about themselves, not because we're putting it on them, but because right. many of them don't feel good about their lifestyle, so they need the law to say it's okay. I saw the same thing happen with the abortion debate. Yes, in 1973, there was another decision made where the the Supreme Court said effectively that people could get abortions, but it didn't make it right, and it didn't mean that the women who got abortions didn't feel demeaned, humiliated, or degraded 
by themselves. It was internal. So pass the laws as much as you want. It still can't fix the conscience, and it still can't correct the direction. The only thing that's going to change our country is for us to be fundamentally changed from within. Yeah. Um, But do you probably... Ago, there were three articles that came out, and I have not been able to find them, and I'm so disappointed that I can't find them because I'd like to be able to document it. But George Will wrote, and uh, Denise D'Souza wrote, and Michael Novak wrote, and a, a fourth one, um guy who used to be the editor of um, the Washington Times, Tony, can't think of his last name right now. Anyway, four of them all wrote within six months period of time articles saying that the only hope for America, this was right at the height of the culture wars in quotes, and they said the only hope for America was a John Wesley type spiritual revival. And I was just blown away, Cynthia, because I thought these are not people who are known for except for Michael Novak for their Christian faith. You know, they write on secular issues, they write for secular publications. They're not people who are, you know, theologians necessarily except for Michael Novak. So these were people who viewed the world from a secular perspective and yet they were looking and saying it's going to take a work of God. And what's what's our plan now? I mean, just give me, whether it's Concerned Women for America or or any of the other think tanks you network with, is there a plan and can you lead us out of the morass somehow? The biggest thing that we will be focusing on at Concerned Women for America is the 2014 elections. We must elect conservative people to the Senate and take over the Senate to be able to provide a balance for the uh, very leftist policies, the radical policies, the redistribution of wealth that President Obama is committed to and the Senate is committed to doing. Um, Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi, uh, you know, we have to reduce their power so that there's a, a counterbalance to this these initiatives that are so detrimental to the country. So that's the first finger that has to be put in the dike. Uh, it's the first stone for the dam that has to stop this overwhelming uh, onslaught that uh, we're up against. But we also have to, I think, uh, renew authentic Christianity. We, You and I have talked a lot about uh, the fact that the lifestyles of Christians are not that significantly different from other people, and we've been far too silent. We have to have more authenticity. We have to live what we believe. We have to live a life that is attractive to young people. Uh, the Southern Baptists recently said, admitted that they were losing 72% of their young people when they go off to college. So our colleges are filled with propaganda against Christianity, against uh, the Judeo-Christian values and principles. Um, Our young people are being attacked from every side. The sexuality of the culture, the promiscuity, uh, all the so-called free sex and the drugs and the drinking, all those things that are so undermining to our young people's well-being, uh, they're just being deluged with those kinds of things. So I think we have to have a body of Christians who show um, the attractiveness of the Christian life and the fulfillment that's there. Um, the evidence is there, you know, in the social science literature, the people who are the happiest are the married people who uh, go to church, uh, the people who's Faith is important to them, is central to their lives, and affects every aspect of their lives. Those are the people who are the happiest, not just uh, in terms of their well-being and their health and all those other very important things, but also sexually. So we need to let young people see uh, the attractive side. It's not just being judgmental. It's not being bigoted. It's not... You know, it's not being ugly, and and I'm not minimizing how difficult that is. You know, earlier you talked about how we're always coming on the defensive. It's so hard to be 
uh, positive in the kind of culture we're living in where this onslaught hits us constantly. And I think that's one reason President Obama has been so successful. There's just been, you know, something coming from both sides in the front and the back constantly. So you start to put out a fire over here, and it's overwhelming over there. And then you go over there and try to do something with that, and and back here there's something else. So um, Right. Meanwhile, the culture is deteriorating. I have seven children, and my husband has said it seems like it's harder to raise the last two than it was to raise the first five. I mean, when my oldest son was a child, I didn't, you know, boys, you used to worry more about people molesting your girls, but now you have to worry more equally about what about the boys. And uh, you've written this book called Children at Risk. And if people want to read more about it, they can get it from your website. Is that correct, JaniceShawKraus.com? Oh, I would be better probably for them to go to the CWA website. And okay, what C- is that in? Yeah, it's CWFA. give out that address. It's cwfa.org or concernedwomen.org. Fantastic. And that will give us hope and help and ideas and a plan. It's not all that bad. There is a better way, and we can and find I do it. And two is called Marriage Matters. That just came out last year, and it deals not just the benefits of marriage for individuals, men, women, and children, but also for communities and nations, the public benefits. And I think that's one area where we really haven't had good, strong arguments, uh, and we need to uh, let people know that it's not just a personal thing. You know, there are plenty of people who say, well, that's good for you, but not for this person. Uh, No, it's best for the community. It's best for the nations, too. It is. And is there one last thought that you want our listeners to think about as they go to bed tonight? One last summary statement that really tells the whole story. What are we supposed to do? I think as adults, uh, we have to do some deep thinking about the kind of world we want to leave. Uh, We have benefited from so many people who went before us. Uh, My father was a World War II veteran, and I'm the oldest, by the way, since he has seven children. (laughs) Nice. So I identify with your situation with seven children. Um, My younger brothers and sisters say the world is very different from when I was growing up, and I'm I'm confident of that fact. I see that as well. But I think... uh, those of us who are adults have to look and say, you know, are we going to leave our children and our grandchildren and their children and their grandchildren a world that is lesser, with lesser opportunity than we have? Uh, you know, I grew up in a world where everybody assumed that the children would do better than the parents did. My parents sacrificed dramatically and significantly so that I and my brothers and sisters would have a better life than they had. And my husband and I did that so that our children would, and our children are doing that so that their children will. Um, Are we going to continue doing that, or do we just lay down and say, you know, the homosexuals have taken over, the godless people have taken over, the leftists have taken over, the radicals have taken over, Uh, I can't do anything. Uh, I think if we care, we really do have to do something. And that means, number one, starting with the way we live our lives, living very authentic Christian lives. Number two, creating a home that is a welcoming place, a place that is a model for a Christian lifestyle, and then moving from there to be concerned about our communities and concerned about the nation enough to vote and to get other people to vote, to write letters, to call Congress, to get actively involved in making the country as strong as it needs to be. Well, that is a good word. Thank you for giving us some time out of your evening, your very busy schedule, and I hope that you know what a blessing you are. We're just going to keep the faith, be strong, and stay together. Thank you for being with us tonight, Dr. Janice. My pleasure. It's been wonderful to be with you.
This has been another edition of Homefront on Missouri Grassroots Radio. I'm Cynthia Davis and hope you enjoyed our program. Please join us next week when we offer another infusion of truth, honesty, and solutions that will grow people bigger and shrink government smaller. Thank you for joining us. See you next week. Oh, 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 oh,